Morning, everyone. How cool was that baptism? How cool was it to see a dad baptizing his daughter? You know, it's amazing because I, I know them a little bit, and uh, she is a pastor's kid. And I'm a pastor's kid. And I have a special place in my heart for, for children who grow up in the ministry because you get to see the best but also the worst of church life and for people to, there's Sean, another pastor's kid. We've got like a whole support circle in our church. Um, and and when, you, when you get to see uh, God's faithfulness in these families, for me, it's an amazing thing. And, uh, and God works wonderfully. And uh, I don't think there's a, a cooler story than seeing parents baptize their kids. So, Father God, we just thank you for the gift of salvation. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness to families, to people, that generationally we, we, we can know you, God. We can make uh, you known to our children, God, that you are a father that anoints fathers and mothers to do what you do, God, and to uh, show their children the way of God. And we just thank you, God, for your absolute goodness to us. And all those people said? Amen. Amen. We uh, are in a new series. Last week, Ross kicked off the new series called Like Father. And of course, the saying is, like father, like son. And uh, I'm looking at a whole bunch of sons of God. Um, and it's sometimes like the newer translations, uh, they translate uh, what in the Greek was sons of God to sons and daughters of God, because we don't want our ladies to feel like they're missing out. But the truth is, is that when you come to faith in Jesus, if you're a man or a woman, you become a son of God. And it's not to deny your gender, it's to understand uh, really what Jesus has done for people. Just kind of like uh, men and women are part of the bride of Christ. You get that? Because I had to get my head around that when I got saved. I was like, what do you mean I'm a part of a bride? Yeah, men and women are part of a bride of Christ. And men and women, when they get saved, they become sons of God. Because in the ancient world, uh, sons had more rights than daughters. Sons would inherit, daughters wouldn't. Sons had more authority and bear their father's name in a way that daughters wouldn't. And when Paul was writing to these communities, he said, hey, you guys are in your society are used to, uh, in a sense, a class distinction between men and women. But in the kingdom of God, it's not like that. It doesn't matter who you are when you get saved. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black, white, Roman or barbarian. That's one of the things. Any barbarians here? Um, I know some of you. Um, <coughs> sorry. It doesn't matter what your background is, when you come to faith, you're all sons. Ladies, you have an equal inheritance as anyone else. You've got equal standing. You've got equal gifting. God has gifted you and anointed you and used you and positioned you, or will use you and empower you to build his kingdom. And you've got a, a mantle from the Father who says that you're sons and you've got equal standing in the kingdom of God. And so what this journey is, is really understanding what God has done for us as men and women, what God has done for us when we come to faith, that we become sons of his. And, uh, and really the amazing thing is that his love for us as his kids defines us. And that we take the cue of who we are off of him. And so last week, Ross did an amazing job speaking really around the, the journey from being orphan-hearted to, to being a, a son of God. And I'm going to dig more into that today. Um, I, had, I remember years ago having this epiphany that I was probably more like my dad than I had first acknowledged. Because you know, you know like when you're a teenager, like you, you don't think you ever will be anything like a dad. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like you're too cool for dad, you know? And then I was driving down the road one day and I was listening to some music and I had my hand on the gear stick and I was tapping my wedding ring 
on the gear stick, which is exactly what my dad used to do my whole childhood. And I was like, where did I learn that from? Just by osmosis, you know? I was like, oh, I'm cooler than my dad, but I'm doing what my dad does. And, uh, and then I, my wife pointed out to me that I laugh like my dad, you know? Which is like, because a laugh's quite a personal thing. Everyone been told, like, you've got a weird laugh or you've got a great laugh or... I laugh, I laugh like my dad. And, and, and I think as you grow up, you realize that actually you, you got a lot more from your parents than at first you acknowledge, you know, when you're really cool as a teenager. And, um, and there's some other amazing things I got from my dad. My dad always loved the Psalms. And I love the Psalms. It's like I probably spend a good percentage of my Bible reading time on the Psalms because the Psalms give expression to the depths of the soul like no other book can. And I remember so many years at breakfast time, my dad would uh, sit there and he'd have his Bible open and be eating his, his food and, uh, and reading from the Psalms. And I, I love the Psalms. And generally speaking, my, my first point of call in the morning and the last in the evening is to visit the Psalms. Uh, I, I was called into ministry like my dad was. And uh, I carried a sense of conviction like my dad. Like my dad was a man of conviction. So when he had conviction, he taught us, you live your convictions no matter the cost. It caused him to go into cross-cultural ministry in the 80s. And, um, and we spent 10 years where I was like the only, we were like the only white family in these colored communities. Wentworth, anyone from Wentworth? No, some, there's some people here from Sydenham. You guys had it, Sydenham, you guys had it easy. Wentworth, it's the real deal. She's saying she knows. She acknowledges it's true. It's, uh, and that's actually where I got to know uh, Reg. Um, is in Wentys. And so we were there like the 80s because my dad said, I don't believe that the, the gospel should divide people on the basis of color. So we're just going to go to church there. And so he, I inherited that from him because he modeled the sense of like we live our convictions. And um, the relationship we have with our dads is absolutely crucial. A couple months ago, I got to share the, the, this pulpit and, and preach with my dad on Father's Day because I'm like a recent dad and I had to preach on Father's Day. And like my, I've only been a dad for a year. Exactly. Judah was born a year ago. Today. It's his birthday today. I know. He's the best. And, uh, and so I was preaching. I was a new dad. I was like, let me get like an old experience belly up here to give people some real advice, you know? Um, and borrow some authority from people who have lived for longer than us. And, um, but during that sermon, I actually I explained that all the research is showing that the biggest predictor of future success as a person is a present and engaged dad. More than your racial background, more than your socioeconomic background, more than gender, uh, education, any of those factors, the biggest predictor of someone's future success as a person is a present and engaged father in their life, which is an amazing thing. Um, and so it doesn't mean that, that if you didn't have that, you're, you know, you're doomed. It's just you've got some obstacles to overcome. Because what happens is that children are made for a relationship with a dad. And when that relationship disintegrates, they tend to replace it with other stuff, which is generally not too helpful for them and harms them. And, um, and so God's actually wired this into the fabric of society because he, he is a father. And so he gave fathers a pivotal position or place in society. And unfortunately, we live in a country with epidemic levels of fatherlessness. Apartheid as a system was designed to separate fathers from children. We had a migrant labor system where people could live and work in one area, but their family couldn't be with them, and so it was designed to break up the nuclear family. When you, when you think of how evil that is, and that the architect of it, for what was actually a sociologist, he knew what he was doing. And so as a country, we don't have 
a crime problem. We don't have a corruption problem or a lawlessness problem. We've got a father problem. Because we, as far back as we can go between the, the wars and apartheid and again and again, fathers have been separated from their children. And so we're a fatherless nation. And so we need this message of the father heart of God. So it's so vital to us to bring restoration to our communities. The Bible describes Adam as the son of God. So in Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy, which is a history of the children. And it's, you know, like this guy was this person's dad, and this person was this guy's dad. And it comes to Adam. And of course, Adam was created by God. And so it says, Adam, the son of God. We were created to be sons of God, to be in relationship with God, to have God as a father, but through sin we were separated from that relationship. And in that sense, that relationship was broken and we inherited orphan-heartedness. And so what I'm going to get into today is a little bit of a description of what orphan-heartedness looks like and how it plays out in our life. But in the Old Testament, God is known as a variety of different names, known by a variety of different names. So the study of the names of God in the Old Testament is quite a crucial a theme if you study theology, and you'll spend quite a bit of time in this. And some of them are like Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider. So God gave himself names to describe who he is. Okay? So Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. Jehovah Tzedekenu, the Lord is my righteousness. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my healer. Each of these names describes something of who God is and so something we can expect from him. But when Jesus comes, he reveals a new name of God, which encompasses all of them plus some. He said, when you pray, you pray like this, our Father. Jesus came to reveal God as a father. And you might not know all the names of God in the Old Testament, but if you know God as a father, then you know more of God than if you knew all the names of the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes to reveal the father. One of the ways he did it, one of the stories he told to do that is the story, the parable of the prodigal son. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. It's actually a parable of two sons, two lost sons. And so this week I'm going to dig into the first son and how he's lost. And next week I'm going to dig into the second son and how he's lost. And so it's kind of like a two-part mini-series in the middle of this series. It's a lot of series. Luke chapter 15. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. He basically came to his dad and said, Dad, I want your inheritance. My inheritance, what's due to me now, before you die. In other words, imagine I phone my dad after the sermon and say, Hey, Dad, I've got two other brothers, but I want my share of your inheritance now. Basically what I'm saying is I care more about your stuff than you. And to me, you're as good as dead because I actually want your stuff and I can't wait for you to die, so can I have it now? You've got to understand the depth of insult this is for this father because his son's coming saying, I don't care about you and our relationship, I want your stuff. A few days later, this younger son packed up his belongings. I only notice this now, a few days later. Can you imagine how awkward those few days must have been? Can you imagine how, like, living, seeing your dad... A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. 
the son leaves his father's house, he's going, I don't want to live with the restrictions of being around the father. I want my freedom. Anyone made this choice at some point? Go off to varsity, leave the home, and the son has a jaw. He gives himself to what the Bible calls wild living. See, here's the point. Whenever you're out of relationship with the father, you must replace it with something. Because your heart was made for a father. And so when you step out of that relationship, you must re replace it with something. And the something that it gets replaced with is what defines the life of being orphan-hearted. And he really only has one of three options. It's a craving for physical pleasure. It's a craving for things we see or materialism. And it's a pride in ourselves. And where do I get that from? I get that from 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. And Ross referred this, re referenced this last week, but we're actually going to dig into the scripture a bit. It says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. You've got to understand that the love of the world, the love of this world, and the love of the Father, they cannot coexist in the human heart. Saying either you've got the love of the Father or you love this world. You can't have both. It's possible to love two children or even three, and to love them the same. Apparently, my parents told me so. Because <laughs> you always check as a kid, right? Who do you love most? It's got to be me. Surely it's me. It's possible to love two kids the same. It's not possible to love the world and the father the same. In fact, it's not possible to love both. Because they're diametrically opposed. You will either love one or the other. Verse 16, for the world offers... Only, here's the three things it offers. A craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So that's what the world offers us. Three principal sins. One, craving for physical pleasure. At some point in your life, you realize there's pleasure to be had, and so you make yourself a little pleasure factory. I'm a little center of my world is my pleasure. I'm a little pleasure center. And I pursue pleasure after pleasure after pleasure because it feels good. And so you live in the moment. And you can imagine the sun getting involved. This is what we think of when it comes to wild living. Party after party, moment after moment. And that's what happens. You live for the weekend. You live for the next high. You live for the next thrill. You live for the next thing. And in between, most of your time is spent A, recovering, and B, planning the next moment of pleasure. The problem, of course, with this is that there's some consequences to this way of life. And the son eventually inherits those. Number two, the craving for everything we see. This is known as materialism. Let me tell you, when the son moved to this new city with all of his dad's money, he didn't go out and buy himself a new R10. I mean, it's a great car. But you don't want to rock up at the jaw in an R10 when you could rock up in a BMW. I, used to, I said Mercedes in the first, thing, the first sermon, and then I remembered that Mercedes are for old people and BMWs are for young people. We know this is true. So he would have gone out and bought himself a very good, nice car. He would have, when he rented a place to have a jaw in, he's not going to go rent himself a bachelor pad. He's going to go rent a place with a view of the ocean so he can impress his friends. And this is how people live. It's like, hey, the, the, we, we know that you can shop at a number of different stores, but if you... Go to some of the cheapest stores, you don't tell your friends where you bought that shirt. Because there's materialism, right? Like we know that some things give us a sense of, look what I'm wearing, and some things are like, I'll wear this around the house. And people live for this stuff. The next item of clothing, the next car, the bigger car, the bigger house, retail therapy. 
and then pride in our achievements and possessions. Once again, the sun didn't rock up. People are like, yo, you're wealthy. And he's like, well, let me tell you, I got all of this money from my dad. He wasn't saying that. He would have made up a backstory about where he got this money, about his business acumen. All that. He would have used words like hedge fund manager. I don't even know what that means. And for me, a hedge, something that grows, you know, it's closer to farming than money. But he would have made up a story to look at what I've achieved in my life. He wouldn't say, actually, I didn't do any of this. I just grew up, my dad was the wealthy guy and he gave me all the bucks. People generally don't claim that kind of stuff. And we do this, right? Because when we meet people, we choose what to tell them about ourselves and what we leave out. We choose to tell people or want people to know who we're friendly with and who we're connected with and who we are not, or where our family's from and where they're not. And it's a strange thing to me, like, that sometimes like, I'll meet people who, like, I'm 38 now. I was at school over 20 years ago, and people will still ask me what school I went to. And I take great joy in telling them Pantown boys high, because we've got a Two types of education there, the book education, the other one. <laughs> but people build a sense of, look at me, and we use phrases like this, a self-made man. What does that mean? It's like, well, I'm a self-made man, I started off with nothing, and look at what I've built. And basically what we're saying, saying is if, if you were wired like me, you would also be where I am. You would also have... Look what I've got to show. You'd also have it. And so because you don't, I'm slightly better or maybe a lot better than you. And your identity is in your career or in being CEO or being preacher. Church people aren't immune to this stuff. I had a conversation with someone earlier. Talking, people are still talking about who's the bishop and who's the... Apart. We don't have that in our thing, but we still care about who's on stage and what does that mean and or a business owner, or your wealth, your status, and some people, they make their whole life about accomplishing someone, something, and they don't care who they walk over or who they hurt in the process. They keep choosing their career over their family, and their whole life is about achieving something that they can be known for, and they do violence to their very souls in the process. You see, any time you're out of relationship with the Father, you have to replace it with something. So my question to you is, what is your drug of choice? Because I find even that as a believer, even as someone that knows the Father, when that connection is strained, when I don't feel like I'm in a relationship, I, I, I return to the same sorts of pleasures that I did before. Or I start dreaming about the next paycheck and the next thing I can buy or the next... What fills your heart and your mind? when being loved by the Father is not the most important thing about you. You know how I think of this, is I think, you don't see it as much anymore, but you still see it, is that sometimes you, you see street kids who are, are sniffing glue. On the one hand, you're like, I wish you wouldn't do that. On the other hand, you're like, well, if I was living on the streets, I'd probably be doing that too. Because they're using something to numb the pain of their reality. But you do it too, and I do it as well. I use physical pleasure. 
I use materialism, and I use pride in my accomplishments and my achievements, like that street kid uses glue to numb the pain of the reality of being without a father. It's no different. Some are just more socially acceptable than others. The person who's working 16 hours a day to make himself a success gets labeled driven and ambitious and hardworking. I just see an orphan on a street corner with a different type of glue. What's your drug of choice? Because let me tell you, you, you're not made for that. And the problem with these things, with the pleasure and materialism and pride in our achievements, is that they fade because it says this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. And even as you're using it, it fades. Even as you're in the midst of that pleasure, it fades. Even as you, man, you buy the car and three months later you're over it. You get the, the promotion. And six months down the line, you're so burnt out, you're so stressed, it hasn't given you what you thought it would give you. Because this world is fading away and everything that people crave is fading away. So Matthew 6, 19 to 24 says this. It says, don't store up treasures here on earth and your treasure might be your pleasure, your treasure might be materialism, your treasure might be your accomplishments and achievements where moths eat them and rust destroys them. And where thieves break in and steal. As South Africans, we understand what that means. Someone has to explain to the Swedes what that means. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart also will be. Your eye is, and this is what we're going to look at here, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. It's a bit cryptic, I'll explain it. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light, but when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. You know what this is, is saying is that when you believe that thing is going to make your life meaningful, when you believe that promotion, that money, that car, when you place your faith and your hope and your trust in that thing and you think it's light, but it's actually darkness, it's actually fading, and your hope goes into it, when that thing fades, how deep that darkness will be. You know what this is like? This is, is people, remember a while ago, when people were buying food from Kauai and then later they found out that Kauai had more calories in it than like some of the fast food joints like Steers and KFC. Does anyone remember that scandal? They've changed their menu now. What was happening is people had placed their faith in Kauai. And they were so proud of themselves, right? Because they drove past KFC and they looked at the people in there and said, ah, I'm not like you. And they drove past Steers and they're like, Wacky Wednesday, ha, I'm not like you. And they arrived at Kauai and their, their faith and their confidence was in the health of Kauai. They didn't realize that they would have been kinder to themselves if they had gone to KFC or Steers and it would have been cheaper. <laughs> and all the people at Sears and KFC were laughing at them. <laughs> more expensive for more calories. 
You see, when you, you place your hope in something to give you a result that it can never give because they've been lying to you, how deep that darkness. Man, you made your career your thing. You made that relationship your thing. You made being part of that circle or being friends with those types of people your thing. And it can't satisfy your heart. And more than that, it alienated you from the Father that can satisfy your heart because it says no one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money, pleasure, materialism, or accomplishment. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding, the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. You think it would be bad if you were looking after pigs? wanting to eat pig food. Imagine how bad it is for a good Jewish lad. I mean, Jesus is picking his levels of degradation to show how far this person has fallen. And, and this is where we, we say that the person came to the end of themselves. Circumstances work to bring this person to the end of themselves. Sometimes the kindest thing that happens to us is we come to the end of ourselves. We break up. We lose our job. We lose our finances. We lose our position. I remember so clearly I got into ministry as a 20-year-old. I was preaching in our church. And my sense of identity and worth was in the position, my pride of life, accomplishment. And God called me to Israel. And I went to go work in a mentoring relationship with a then CEO of an organization, and I was going to travel and preach with him. And then he left, and the gardener left. And they asked me to become the gardener. The kindest thing God did to me at that stage of my life was give me two years pushing a broom around the garden. I came to the end of myself. And what I realized in that space is that God loved me as much in the garden as he did in the pulpit, but I didn't. My sense of value was in the wrong thing. My sense of identity was in the wrong thing. And God wanted to root my identity in here. The kindest thing that happens sometimes is we come to the end of ourselves and it's not God being like mean to us and breaking us so that we finally give our lives, we finally submit to Him. It's just that the thing that I placed my hope in was sooner or later was going to fade. Better as a 25-year-old than as a 45-year-old. Better find out early that the thing you place your trust in is going to fade, it's going to leave you short, it's going to leave you wanting. 
Because in that place, we can let go of that which fades and lay hold of that which will never fade and never diminish and never yield and never let up or let go. The one who is immovable and permanent, the architects of history, the creator of this world, the king upon the throne, the rock of ages, forever good, forever loving, forever steadfast and forever faithful. How kind our God is. Because until we let go of that which never fades, we can't receive that which will never fade. Until we let go of numbing our pain, like a child on a street corner with glue, we can't be healed and made whole by the love of the Father. Finally, the son, he, when, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as one of your hired servants. Note that it was the hunger in his stomach that brought him home, not his missing the father. God doesn't care what state we arrive in. God doesn't care how we got there. He just, he's just glad you're home. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, the father is waiting on the porch, on the patio, on the veranda of his house, waiting for sons and daughters to come over here. He's for, saying, uh, 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 for, for seeing the, the landscape of our lives and waiting for us to come over that hill. And when he sees us coming, when he sees us some coming, he runs to him. You know, men in those days did not run. It's considered undignified. He runs to him because he's filled with love and compassion. He's not sitting there tapping his foot and saying, oh, nice to see you, he's coming home, huh? Finally. Nice to see who's walking over the hill. He doesn't care about judgment, and there's no anger, there's just love and compassion. He runs to his son, he embraces him, and he kisses him. There's a tenderness and a lavish affection in God that many of us are deeply uncomfortable with. I've got to, sorry, can we turn down or off the air cons? I'm finding it hard to concentrate. I don't know if anyone else is. I'm like, I'm like the most Durban oak in the world, so not a good gauge of temperature. I've got a, a friend that he grew up and he never hugged his dad. He had a great relationship with his dad. He loved his dad, but he never hugged him. He only ever shook his hand. And I'm like the opposite. Like, I'm like the huggy guy, right? So I mean, at that stage, I was 18 and he was 30 and we actually became good friends. And I remember every time I saw him, I used to give him a big hug. And you know what he used to do? He used to go like this. Because <laughs> he was uncomfortable with that level of affection. And some of us, when it comes to the love of our father, 
we come home and he throws his arms around us and he embraces us and he kisses us and we go, because we're uncomfortable with the level of the affection of the Father for us. And we hide behind things of God, you know, I'm so sorry and God, I'm not good enough. And God, I messed up last week or then. And all these things that we raise because we don't feel like we're worth the affection of the Father. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is actually just receive his love. As his father said to the servants, I love this bit. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He gives him the speech. And his father says, nothing. But his father said to the servants, he didn't even, he didn't even answer. Why? Because he already answered with running and embracing and loving and kissing and compassion. And you come to God, God, I'm so sorry. God, forgive me. God, I'm so, oh, I'm a bad person. And the God has already answered your objection by sending a son to the cross. A son of lavish, lavish affection and desperate desire to be in relationship with you. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. You know what a symbol of a a finest robe is? It's a symbol of identity and belonging and authority. Jacob gives uh, his son Joseph a coat of many colors because it's a, I want you to see how amazing the son is and the special place he has in my life. And the Bible says that we have been clothed with Christ. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. A ring was a symbol of authority because again, Joseph got given a ring to symbolize who he was. But better than that, that ring was how you used to go into town. You could purchase things and you could give a sign of purchasing with the ring. They used to do it in clay and then the guys would bring all the little clay tablets and bring it to the master of the house who would pay for all the receipts. You get given a credit card. The Bible says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You've been given access to the full inheritance of, of heaven and sandals for his feet. Why? Because slaves didn't have sandals, but sons did. The father removes the shame of his past life. He arrives home barefoot, broke, and in tatters, and the father puts the best robe over him. He gives him an inheritance and he gives him position. And kill the calf we have been fattening. Thank you, Jesus. For Shishinyama. <laughs> Sorry, vegans, but it's just a party is not a party without some proper steak. <laughs> we must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. You know, the Bible says every time a sinner returns home, heaven erupts with a party. There's celebration in heaven. There was a party for you in heaven. Heaven knows your name because they had a party for you. Angel came home one day. He'd been on assignment. He got home and said, hey, there's a party here. Whose party is it? Ah, it's Seth's party. Seth came home. Bones, there was a party for you, bro. A big one. <laughs> Lots of meat. Amen. Transcar vibes. 
Hey? Not all those sushi rolls there, bro. Chops. Father, the, the Father and heaven celebrated your return. And heaven knows your name because there's been a party there for you already. So here's the thing. You were made for the Father. You were made for the Father. And any time you're not in a relationship with the Father, you must replace it with something. And all this world offers is pleasure, materialism, and pride in our achievements, but all of them fade. But the love of the Father will last forever. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a good Father. And God, you're so much better than anything this world has to offer us. And I just want to give people an opportunity this, this morning. If you're seated here today and you know that you want to come home and you want to give your life to the Father, that you've been living for the wrong things, for things that will fade, and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, if that's you this morning, can you just raise your hand? I'd love to pray with you. So, man, that's me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Anyone else in here, that you, you're going, I want to come home, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to know the love of the Father. Thank you so much. Man, he loves you. I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and you can pray this prayer in your own heart. Lord Jesus, I choose to come home today. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead. And this morning, I choose to give you my life. Father, thank you that right now there's a party in heaven. And Father, I thank you for the joy of heaven and the joy of being in relationship with you. And I pray, God, for your people that they would know your love in a wonderful way. In Jesus' name, amen.